I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Chips, a soccer podcast with Vice Sports. I am Aaron Gordon, a writer here in the Brooklyn office of Vice. And joining me on the line today is not Will McGee, who is out today doing Valentine's Day things with his girlfriend, which is pretty sweet. Joining me instead is uh, Brian Blickenstaff, another Vice Sports writer. He writes for the U.S. office, but is based out of Germany, so we're still keeping that transcontinental or intercontinental theme going which is very important here at chips brian how are you doing today tonight to you good good happy happy valentine's yes happy valentine's day to you as well (laughs) did you do anything uh anything special or do you have anything special planned with your wife uh i don't um really no but i woke up today i must say i woke up today i've been sick so i woke up a little bit late and she had already left and and i found a card that said that she loves me as much as she loves tacos. Wow. Uh, I, I actually like got a little that's, theory-eyed. I'm not, I'm not even <laughs> that's great. And, <laughs> I mean, you, you, you've lamented to me before about the, the state of, uh, of Mexican food in Germany as being uh, subpar, to say the least. It's definitely not good. <laughs> <laughs> the situation is, is not good. Yeah, I but. guess, you know, we all must make sacrifices in life, and yours was to give up quality Mexican food when you move to somewhere other than the United States. Or Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a food podcast, despite the name. Uh, so, so we must talk about, about soccer things. Since you're in Germany, I thought it would make sense to kind of take advantage of that and, uh, you know, talk about some things going on there, or at least one kind of news item going on there, which really hasn't been discussed that much in the U.S., if I'm being perfectly honest. And I, I kind of want to talk about why that might be. But first, just for a bit of background on, you know, what it actually is that I'm referring to, there's like some hooligan problems going on at Dortmund right now, and which is kind of interesting because especially amongst Americans, Dortmund is really regarded as like this kind of model club in terms of fan support in an age where there's a lot of like gentrification amongst fan bases, but Dortmund seems to be still super passionate and really involved with a lot of really great fans and a great like game day atmosphere that historically, at least to us, seems not violent. And so they've had these problems lately. What was it last week? The police stopped two buses full of hooligans and seized pyrotechnics, batons, and drugs, which, I don't know, sounds like a great night to me, but uh, apparently not if you're going to soccer. <laughs> so, I don't know, Brian, what, what's the reaction been like in Germany to this, and, like, is there more to the story? Like, what's kind of going on here? Um, 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's more to the story. It's, uh, it's, it's. I think ultimately, it's a, it's a fight over fan culture in German soccer and what that's going to look like going forward. But what really kicked it off was a couple weeks ago, or, or was it last week? No, two, a couple weeks ago, when Dortmund played Red Bull Leipzig or RB Leipzig, a bunch of Dortmund fans basically like. I don't know if assault is quite the right word, but they seriously intimidated and threw things at a bunch of Red Bull fans, like including little kids and stuff. And it was a pretty ugly scene. And so the German Football Federation decided that it's going to, um, as a as like a response to that, Dortmund now has to play their next fixture against Wolfsburg um, with the with their yellow wall empty of uh, of people. And the yellow wall is like it's, it's like the biggest fan tribune in European football i think certainly in german soccer um it's like twenty six thousand fans and it's where all the hardcore fans go and yeah and so it's the one with the giant like tifo setup too right yeah right 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 and that's like yeah that's where their diehard fans go so the, our colleagues at advice uh, sports germany today wrote an article saying this is actually a missed opportunity by the german federation they should have done what Fenerbahce did a couple was it last season or two seasons ago when they had to play with an empty stadium and instead they filled it with just women i think women and children oh i didn't know about that that's pretty cool is the argument that dortmund should have done the same just fill it with women and children or yeah i mean it was the dfb's call i guess but but yeah i mean this yeah, is yeah. Yeah, a missed opportunity to to do something uh, a little more special than just simply you know make them play without that support right there. just a question about the incident with rb leipzig how many like hooligans are we talking about here like how big of a of a confrontation was this or was it just like a small group of people um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it is. It's definitely like a minority of the Dortmund fans sure. who are like these hardcore. Like, I don't know if hooligans or ultras are. I mean, I don't. Know, it's hard to say who's who. I mean, I mean, in Germany, like uh, the right wing fans are considered hooligans, and the left wing fans are considered ultras. So there's like a distinction between the two groups. But like, I don't know exactly who's responsible. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head how many like victims there were. I don't think it was more than like 50, but I don't really know for sure. I could look it up real quick. No, it's, it, I was just trying to get a sense of it because it's, you know, the, the term hooligan, I feel like has kind of morphed so much, especially over the last, mm-hmm. like, if you take the broad view of like, you know, the last few decades, but now it just seems like basically to be a catch all term for anyone who acts badly at a soccer game. Uh, and it's yeah. lost a lot of its more political or cultural significance when the term is used so like when i hear you know when i heard that you know there were there were hooligans arrested at a doorman match or that you know they, they spit on some fans it's like i don't know whether this is the equivalent of you know a bunch of drunk idiots in the bleachers at a baseball game or if they're actually like a political group of some sort um yeah i i, I, I they're definitely more than drunk idiots like uh at a football <laughs> game i don't know how like if political group is quite that might be like a little too strong at the same time but they're definitely like organized groups who uh who you know diehard fans who like go and support their team and i think in germany especially i think in you get this elsewhere in europe too but i think in germany there's like a kind of nostalgia for hardcore football support soccer support and sort of like a higher tolerance for that sort of thing than you would get nowadays in like england for example um which is kind of weird what do you mean, like, a higher tolerance for it? Like, do the people are willing to put up with this at matches more than they would be in, say, England? Yeah, I think so. In England, if you got if you got people there with flares, like, throwing flares onto the field, which this is something that happened in the last couple seasons, like, around Germany, there's been this big discussion about whether flares are such a big deal. Um, whereas I think if you get, like, in, in England, if you throw flares onto the field, it happens once in a while, and it's like a, it's like a big yeah. news item. 
but but so like in, in Germany, there's this there's this conversation, this dialogue that's always going on about about so-called fan culture and whether specifically around flares, like it gets like really intellectual sometimes, and um, you know whether flares should be considered like a, a legitimate tool for supporting your team or whether they're like contraband, for example, and. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that there's a lot of people who, who want, who think that people, you know, like fans should have a little more um, latitude to support their team and their community. I, I think the, the thing that Americans struggle to fully grasp is that, like, all these teams represent, like, a really specific, except for maybe Bayern, like, a really specific part of, like, like a city, you know, or, or even, like, a neighborhood within a city. And so a lot of these fans, like, are traveling around Germany not just like in support of their team but kind of in support of of like their home and um and so it takes on kind of a, a little extra meaning for that for that reason so. is that still true even with I mean like Dortmund has become a internationally renowned club at this point you you made an exception just now for Bayern Munich but it does that exception not still yeah. stand for Dortmund or is there some tension there between how the local people regard the club as like still a local club and internationally it's gaining all this uh, traction. Yeah, I think there's a big t- big tension in all of German soccer with around that specifically. But yeah, I would say I would say like all of the teams here again maybe with like the exception of Bayern. But but even if Bayern has their hardcore support who are like from the city. But but the the, the real concern I think for for football fans is in Germany is that like they're going to um, lose this fifty plus one rule that ensures that that the fans own part of their teams, and that from there um, from there the the ticket prices are going to go up and like the concession prices are going to go up and it's going to become unaffordable for your regular people and then it's going to turn into like the situation in England and I'm and I'm you know that's a little bit hyperbole I guess but in, in England I mean tickets are expensive like we were looking I have a friend from Liverpool and we were looking to go to a go to a game maybe in Liverpool and it's like forget it we just couldn't afford it basically so um so that's the that's the concern and and the reason that the Dortmund fans are going after Red Bull Leipzig is because Leipzig kind of is a is the first real model that that is a of ownership model that that kind of threatens the 50 plus one situation so so fans are are especially angry about that. Yeah, it's it's a re- it's really interesting because it seems like Bayern is basically, or I'm sorry, not Bayern, but German. <laughs> I, of course, I, my Freudian slip is I just use Bayern to refer to German soccer in general. Um, <laughs> but it, it really it really feels like that's the tension between you know wanting to be a, a you know I mean they already are a top four European league, but to really be closer to the Premier League and less of, you know, Serie A or La Liga is uh, you do have to give up a lot of those local things, I feel like, and a lot of the things that make the game worth attending in person. Uh, I think that's a huge sacrifice the Premier League has made. uh, And I'm not, I mean, obviously being in America doesn't affect me, but I certainly understand how someone who you know lives closer and wants to go to matches like yeah i've i've looked at ticket prices too and they're they're absolutely insane they're nfl you know level expensive um but instead of only having six you know eight home games you have what is it uh 19 so it's yeah it's yeah i mean like you said there's definitely like a tension between here between um you know between keeping the sport sort of like uh closer to its origins for lack of a better term and and globalizing it and I think if you if you, the higher up you get, in terms of the different organizations that have a stake, like I think 
you don't really hear people making this statement, but I, I would wait. I would imagine that like most of the owners of the or the people who have big stakes in the big teams here in Germany and the administrators in the German Football Association and league are probably secretly like for getting rid of the fifty plus one rule because then then you would be able to really get the money into some of these big teams to compete financially better with. England. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's not hard for me to imagine. It's you know, if 50 plus 1 it kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of like promotion and relegation, which is that um pro rel is not something that any league starting now would want to have because it would be it's bad for yeah. the owners. Like it's really bad to have that level of uncertainty, but it also is something that they're not willing to get rid of because it's something fans love so much and it would really be a sea change to do it. Um, the 50 plus one rule right. seems kind of structurally similar in that it's something that fans love because it makes the league ex- or the teams accessible to them and they can go to games and it, it keep things affordable and still have a say in how th- clubs are run. But it's obviously bad for management because <laughs> the fans get a say in how clubs are run. Yeah. yeah, and I think this sort of tolerance that I was referring to earlier in, in Germany, like this sort of tolerance toward uh, hooliganism and just like really hardcore fan support is part of that. It's like it's like a reaction to the globalization of the sport, you know, and it's sort of like, I mean, this is just like me, like theorizing off the top of my head. Right. But I, I, I feel like it's, it's kind of like they're harkening back to like the eighties and the early nineties when hooliganism was kind of like out of control across Europe and as a way to kind of like react towards the, the global. Yeah. So one, one last question on this, like to put you on the spot, is this a problem that's going to get worse or do you think this is closer to an, like uh, just a aberration that, you know, they had to address and, and they did so. You mean like specifically for Dortmund? Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, well, both specifically for Dortmund and also just generally in the Bundesliga, given that there's this tension uh, between corporate ambitions and fan, you know, passion support for the 50 plus one rule. And yeah, I mean, OK, so for Dortmund, I think Dortmund probably will learn its lesson a little bit here. And at least for the next little while, kind of like the the hooligans or ultras, whoever they were, will just kind of chill out because, you know, they, they do also want their team to win and they don't want to cause the club harm. But I think this overall conversation in German soccer about like about like the value of fan culture versus versus globalization is not going away. And I don't know how I don't I mean I don't know how it would end. Either either I think you know if if Dortmund and and Bayern and hopefully some other teams can start to really compete on the European stage then I think it kind of could maintain at this status quo for a while. If something were to happen where the German team started performing really really poorly in Europe for a long time over like several seasons then I could see them trying to or at least having like an open conversation about the fifty plus one rule. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's that's a bigger topic for uh, another day, perhaps. Let's uh, let's move yeah. on to something that I'm excited to talk about because it's you know it's something that well it's certainly something that you've paid a lot of attention to and something that I've just started getting interested in. And it kind of combines a couple of topics we're interested in in both injury prevention and also youth development. So the news is that I think it was yeah yesterday it was announced that James. How do you pronounce his last name? Bunce? Yeah, Bunce, James yeah. Bunce, who uh, he was formerly the head of elite performance for the Premier League, is now, uh, he got hired by U.S. Soccer to be their director of high performance, which, I don't know, it seems kind of like a catch-all title for just make us better. But, uh, <laughs> so, it, basically, his uh, it sounds like he's going to be mostly working with the youth side and is going to kind of take over the part of Jurgen Klinsmann's job that was a technical director of 
you of U.S. soccer. That's at least kind of how the New York Times article written about it was billed. Um, we'll we'll see how it goes. But it was, I mean, as a quick aside, it was certainly true that it came out after Jurgen was fired that he wasn't really doing much as a technical director. Like that job had basically been out outsourced and and compartmentalized by a bunch of other people. So it was clear that someone else was going to be hired, and Bruce Arena was not going to be responsible for that. And it certainly seems like James Bunce is the is the guy they've kind of hired to take over most of those duties. Bunce is hired, and he's he's an interesting guy. So you wrote about him and kind of what he was doing in the Premier League a couple of months ago. So why don't you just kind of like get us up to speed on that? Yeah, um, well, he, he he got started at the Southampton Academy as like a strength and conditioning coach, I believe, um, a few years ago. Now, he's only like thirty one, I think, which is which is kind yeah, of yeah. That was but, crazy um, to me, realizing how young he was. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, like he's younger than I am, <laughs> which is weird. But, um, yeah, so you know he's kind of like one of these like young young hotshots in the in this particular industry. And one of the things that he did at Southampton, well, first of all, Southampton is like I would say over the last decade probably the most productive youth setup in all in all of like English top flight. I mean, like the number of, the number of like really good Premier League players that they have produced is I think second to none. I, I don't have the statistics in front they're of me. certainly and they're certainly well regarded too. Like if you if you yeah. are if you're just hearing conversation about, you know, top youth development academies in England, it, they're always, you know, mentioned as one of the for top sure, three. Sure. So yeah. yeah. So at there he he got involved with this program um, that is they call biobanding. And he ended up taking this program to the Premier League, and the Premier League is in the process of rolling it out, basically league wide right now. And I think it'll it will go below the Premier League as well. But biobanding, basically, that the what they've noticed is that, and this isn't true of a lot of different sports, that kids who make it or, or who who really excel and often make it as a pro tend to be born in the first part of the year. You know, like fewer make it who are born in the later part of the year. I mean, the the hypothesis there is that. Uh, the physical size has a lot to do with it. You know, that if you're, if you have that extra nine months or, you know, 11 months, whatever it is to develop, then you're going to be bigger earlier and you're going to, you know, outperform other kids who might be technically better, but are just physically not as strong. Um, and what biobanding does is kind of try and solve for that size. So it puts you, instead of grouping kids by age group, uh, or actually in addition to grouping kids by age group, they group kids by like physical size. And there's different ways that they measure that. So, so a kid that's in a bio-banded program might, might for, um, for example, like six weeks compete in training um, and, and in competitive play as like a, in, in, according to his size, and then for the next six weeks according to his age and back and forth. So this is, is this basically just like weight classes in boxing? It's similar to that, yeah. <laughs> so this, this, this is kind of like one of the funny things to me, though, because I, I, I I'm not going to, I mean, like, full full disclosure, I completely somehow missed your article when you wrote it, and I was just catching up on all this stuff <laughs> yesterday. I, I read it, and I was like, biobanding just sounds like another one of those things that we're going to be talking about is this gigantic revelation and, like, oh, this really brilliant strategy when it's actually just in, an incredibly simple thing that other sports have been doing for a long time. Yeah, I think that that's true. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> they've been doing it in, uh, in rugby, too. Um, for a, for a longer than they have in, in, in at least in the, in England soccer English soccer so but it's funny you know I talked to a bunch of coaches and and like uh, and you know both both like coaches and like strength and conditioning people at various academies around England and they they all like had 
I mean, it was like a revolutionary concept to everybody, you know, and, and they're super excited about what's going to happen, what it's going to look like in, you know, five, ten years after, after a program's been in place for a while, and whether there's going to be a, a real change, um, a noticeable change in terms of, like, who, what the players look like who uh, these academies produce. I think it's an interesting thing to think about, because as you kind of wrote in your article, there's a flip side to it. Like, there are two sides to the coin. One is, obviously, you don't want kids trying to learn the technical aspects of the game at the same time as they're just physically diminutive and can just get bossed around and it doesn't matter what they do technically because that's obviously going to hamper their development. But at the same time, if they remain undersized, they're going to have to learn at some point how to manage that and you know play against bigger people. But I guess the concept of biobanding is that just because you're undersized at a certain age doesn't mean you're going to be undersized for your entire career, right? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, look at Messi, right? Or or Aguero. Like these guys are tiny, and they're able to, you know, they've they figured out how to play with people who are physically stronger than them. So so yeah, like there's one thing that everybody stressed when I was reporting this is that biobanding is not going to replace traditional age group training because you are going to. I mean, you know, at, at some point you you are who you are, right? And you have to you have to figure out how to make it work. Um, but what, what's interesting is that like a bunch had a bunch of statistics about about how and you, you can you can refer to my article to read a little bit more about this but uh about about like what happens when the little the smaller kids play with bigger kids and they they make like fewer runs and make more lateral passes instead of um forward passes and um so i mean like they play they actually play quite differently when they uh when they're playing with kids who are bigger than them and when they play with people within their bio band they're more they're often more expressive on the ball and are are more apt to like make sprints and and run into space when they wouldn't otherwise and stuff like that so so it's clear that there are some you know that that the training is different and and um you know i i think it's hard to argue that you know putting kids in different giving kids different looks in different situations couldn't wouldn't be helpful you know um so yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like I said, uh, what it, what it looks like in in a few years. I think so. I want to get your thoughts on what you think applying this to U.S. soccer might look like and what the games might be. Do, do you think it's basically the same thing that he was doing in the Premier League, but just applied to U.S. soccer, or do you think there's anything he has to adjust for or account for when trying to bring these uh, techniques or training techniques, I guess, over to the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think he'll have to adjust to you know the different the different soccer culture i guess i, I you know i'm not sure I, I, I don't think that anybody's doing this kind of biobanding stuff in the at least in the developmental academies like the u.s soccer developmental academy system it'll be interesting to see how quickly i think a big a big difference will be how quickly it's embraced or not in the united states i think um one, one of the things that i that i got out of conversing with all the people that I, who, who i talked to in england was that like i mean english soccer is pretty insular you know and and traditional um, and not necessarily super open to new ideas. So there was some resistance to the idea of biobanning. And there's definitely some people who think it's a bunch of crap. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, I mean, this is me projecting, but I think in the U.S. It, people will be a little more open to it. And, and it'll be interesting to see if they have, like, a banded competition. The barometer, I guess, will be, like, how quickly these develop, the U.S. developmental academies will incorporate by a banning competition because that's something that's not really happening on a large scale yet in England. They're they're training in these bio bands, but they're not. I mean, there's no competitive setup as of right now um, that incorporates 
you know, team versus team bio-banded bio competition. But they're, they're talking about doing it in the future. Yeah, I also wonder if MLS is going to embrace it too. I mean, they're, they're certainly tied enough yeah. to U.S. soccer that I could see that happening. But yeah, I just wonder whether they'll do it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what sort of stamp he puts on U.S. soccer. To me, I mean, when I think about the, the when I think about U.S. soccer, I mean, one of the big problems is the uh, child labor laws, basically, right? Like, kids can't sign professional contracts under 18, so they get poached from elsewhere. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I would combine, you know, I, I think child labor laws maybe so- makes it sound like more, more sinister yeah, than it no, is. I mean, child yeah. labor laws are a good yeah. thing. I'm not like... <laughs> Damn kids should be able to work in sweatshops if they want. <laughs> no, but I, I agree. It's And, you know, it's something we've seen... Yeah, and like with FIFA rules, too, specifically. I think FIFA made a lot of very well-intentioned rules regarding kids moving countries, essentially, to play for different clubs. And I think they were trying to address a very real problem, but I think the rules they put in place might not be the most effective at doing so. Mm -hmm. I think they tend to just be like administrative roadblocks for kids who actually are trying to go through the system properly and have a very legitimate chance at being professional players. And for kids who don't, they're, it's, they're completely ignored by the process and the rules. Like, they just can fly under the radar without much difficulty, and it just prevents them from getting any type of contract when they immigrate to a new country to try and play soccer, and the clubs see them and are just like, oh, well, you didn't, you know, you can, didn't pro- come here properly, so we can't possibly sign you. So I think it, there, it's like a, you know, I think it was, it's a classic unintended consequence problem. And as it pertains to U.S. soccer, you know, I think it's something we've seen with players before where like, you know, Pulisic is a pretty classic case of a player who was good enough that the system didn't really stop him from doing anything because he just moved to Germany with his dad and his dad got a job in Germany and everything was above, above board in terms of the FIFA rules um but at the same time he did it at an age where typically you don't want a kid that young uprooting his life just to try and play soccer in a different country you know yeah i think his dad being there is obviously a huge benefit oh it's definitely it's definitely a benefit and i mean like again this is like a good situation for pulisic i don't mean to be implying that he should have had to stay in the u.s by any means but at the same time, you get a lot of, you know, especially like Hispanic players along the U.S.-Mexico border who, you know, just go, who get recruited by agents, just hop across the border to Mexico for a tryout with yeah. a club, don't get it, and then find out that this has screwed up not only their FIFA eligibility, but also their NCAA eligibility because they've tried to go pro. And so there are a lot of moving parts here in the U.S., especially because of how the NCAA interacts with the whole thing. But that's a that's a big, big topic. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. I, also, like geography, just just like the how how much travel. I mean, like the density of like really um, of, of like these developmental teams, I think, is an issue too, right? Like the in order to play really competitive ball, you have to live in a in an area that's. Um, that's either like a really big city or close to a bunch of like reasonably big cities. Right, right. <laughs> so um, that'll be an interesting thing to see, like how how the US continues to address that. Just that's also a problem for MLS, I think. Right, like just yeah, totally. I mean, and, and also it, like, one thing that it, I feel like doesn't dis- get discussed enough in terms of you know US soccer development is you know it, it's not 
the analogy is not U.S. soccer is you know failing at development relative to individual European countries because the scale is that of Europe in general. So you basically have to mm. imagine a, a European soccer development process, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like it, the system just taking a European model and like dropping it on the U.S. doesn't doesn't totally work, you know, which makes it which is why it's so no. difficult, I think. But my sense is that the U.S. succeeds in producing like talented sixteen-year-olds, but just like totally fails at shepherding them through like that last stage to becoming a pro, yeah, or like a you know, like a top pro. And my 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 question there would be like. Is the, are they actually developing si- talented 16-year-olds, or is it just that there are so many people in the U.S. that talented 16-year-olds emerge because they are naturally talented, and we fail at actually developing them as, as professional yeah. players? Well, I don't know. I mean, either way, I think they're, they're, they're there. The, the number of them who are there like, is not reflected, I don't think, in the, in the professional stage. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so it, any, going back to Bruns for a second— uh, D- does he do anything along injury prevention lines too, or is he m- is it mostly just about development? Um, yeah, he does. I, this is not something that I'm like an expert on, but apparently he's gone through uh, the process of really sort of like um, opening up a large database and data sharing thing in England, uh, where they look at uh, injuries um, and have that all divided by age group and. Um, and uh, level of play and that sort of thing, um, and so it's kind of like a big, uh, big study in a sense of of injuries in soccer, which is pretty interesting. Do you have any idea if they're like if that's something they're planning on making public at some point so we can learn more about soccer injuries, or is it something that they're just using for internal purposes? I imagine that they won't make it public. <laughs> um, that's too that's too bad because it's so hard to do like large scale studies on that yeah, issue. Yeah, maybe they'll, maybe they'll so. open it up to the ac- academia, but like just yeah. no, just based on my own experiences like talking to to clubs and the league over there like they I, I doubt that they'd make it just public. But yeah. But that's just that's just my sense. I don't know. I mean but yeah, it'd be cool to see. I I could see them opening up to to academia and I mean I I think that if if the data set is is as robust as it sounds like, there's some really interesting things that could come out of it. Um, you and I have both written on injury prevention and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool to see. We're kind of at this interesting period in injury prevention science where it's developing really fast because we're, we, we have the technology now to gain all this information that we didn't have the capability of collecting before, mm-hmm. you know, through like um, – you know, bio trackers and things like that. And, but we're not at the point yet where we're really able to take away a ton of solid conclusions from it yet because the data is still right. so new. And so there are lots of, lots of theories kind of out there, but not a lot of solid. And like you say, especially about English soccer, they tend to not be extremely open to new ideas. So even if we might be coming up with some solid hypotheses that you know teams want to start implementing, there aren't that many teams that have the structure for the buy-in to actually start implementing those processes. So it's, it's kind of like we're in a very interesting period where I feel like in the next five years especially, you're going to start seeing some new managers who maybe grew up in a more analytical environment and are going to be more open to adopting these types of things. Like one interesting story is uh, like Klopp is really into injury prevention using analytics, right? So I've written about this uh, this injury prevention expert before named Tim Gabbett, who he's an Australian and kind of travels around the world consulting with uh, 
with teams. And he consulted at Liverpool like pretty soon before Klopp got there, but it was clear that like it was Klopp's team, if I recall correctly. And he told them about his his, you know, research on the subject, which he's been doing for over 30 years. And basically that uh it's a mistake to think that you need like rest time as a as a professional like that actually leads to more injuries what you need to do is basically uh increase your workload gradually to build up to a peak and then once you once you get to that peak you stay there because if you're constantly working out hard you're going to be training your muscles and your body to perform at that peak level which you obviously have to do during games and so the conventional wisdom of resting before a big game so that you um can perform highest is actually going to lead to more injuries and that's why overwhelmingly players get injured more often in the last half hour of games like data shows so anyways uh he presents his theory to Klopp uh and they loved it and they started to adopt it and if you remember when Klopp started it seemed like everyone at Liverpool was busting a hamstring and being out for like three weeks to a month. And apparent, and like that's what happens when you train really hard at first, right? Because you're trying to build up these players' loads to that peak performance level and people get hurt doing that. Um, but this year, Liverpool's they've had one of the best injury records in the league. Nobody's getting hurt. And part of that is because, at least, you know, uh, in theory, it's because they're they're using this peak performance injury prevention model, and it seems to be working. So it's like it, it, there, this is one example at least of how this could work. But it seems like a lot of teams are afraid to adopt it because, say, if you're a team, you know, if you're like a mid-table or even relegation battle team, you're a new manager who comes in, let's say, for Swansea, for example, you don't have like half a season to just, ri- you know be willing to like bust a bunch of players hamstrings trying to get them up to peak performance yeah. right so it's only a select few managers yeah. who really can do it yeah that's that's fascinating it's a uh, I, I didn't actually know that i see i, I must have missed your story so <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> no it, it is really interesting but i think like i think the especially like you know i talking with tim about uh you know when he goes to teams and the kinds of reaction he gets you know a lot of yeah. times teams just like don't you know, they're like, oh, that's interesting, but we could never, you know, implement that, which is, like, obviously ridiculous. Like, anyone can implement that. It's just about how you train, not anything else. And, but so, so many teams just see it as, like, this non-starter to change the fundamental way that they think about training. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's also kind of one of those ideas that just goes so contrast to everything, runs so contrast to everything that we've been taught and practiced since we were, like, little kids that it's tough to, it's tough to, you know, have the have the courage to like just say like yeah i'm gonna try right this, but it's know? also weird because like i totally get what you're saying about having the courage to try it but also like there's you know 25 to 30 years of research proving that it's you know it's accurate so i don't know it's, it seems like uh like i get it on the one hand like because if it doesn't go well it's also one of those damned if you, yeah. damned if you do damned if you don't scenarios like if you implement it and a lot of your players get injured, you need an organization that's willing to support you through that as you start to implement the system. Whereas if you don't implement it, players just continue to get hurt at their normal rate and you're not available and they're not available for, you know, your team selection, then you're damned in the long run. So it's like either way, you kind of are su- subjecting your yeah, team to yeah, right. injuries. This goes back to soccer being kind of like this conservative I mean, all sports, I think, I guess, when it's level, like, pretty conservative in terms of 
in terms of trying new things, right? It's like, do you take a chance on something that looks really good and, and there's like evidence there, but it hasn't really been tried in this situation before and, and essentially risk your career or your season doing so? Or do you just kind of say like, uh, it's a little too risky. I'm going to, I'm going to stick to, stick to what I've been doing. Right. It goes back to like the major scientifically driven, uh, breakthroughs in the sports world of the last 20 years have basically been walks matter in baseball. Three (laughs) points is better than two in basketball. And it's better not to have your players injured in soccer when possible. Like, I mean, these are like the big, the big breakthroughs we've had. So yeah, I think conservatism yeah, is definitely the so name funny. of the game. And, and uh, those terms, um, yeah, man, that's so funny. But it's interesting, like going back to what you said earlier about like we've we've reached a point, and this is true of a lot of sports as well, where, where like we've we've reached a point in terms of data collection that has like is way is still way ahead of our ability to like analyze the data i think when when it comes to this this injury stuff which is <clears throat> i th- i think at least when i was reporting my stories um about injury prevention this is like where it was is like they they knew they they could measure everything you know from like heartbeats to uh you know distance run like number of sprints like all this stuff on load but they had they had very little idea how all that stuff related to injuries <laughs> and um, yeah, exactly. at the same time, like hamstring injuries have been going up over like every year, like three percent a year since the, since the the study that I was or the the researchers I talked to started looking at it in in I think two thousand two. So it's like hamstring injuries are out of control now. Three percent a year is a lot over time. Yeah, because there's no because there's no actual reason that hamstring injuries should be more common other than like basically mismanagement as a result of you know more games that players have yeah right i mean the theory is basically like oh the game is faster now i mean there's there's evidence to back this up um although i've talked to some like retired players who just like refuse to believe that (laughs) the game is which is even though like all you have Um, to do is watch an old game it's like watching slow motion yeah and there's i mean you know like you can just like yeah you're right it's like it looks different but then there's all this data too about like how far players run and um you know uh ball contact and stuff like that and it's like way more way faster so so that's you know like but but okay so we know the game's speeding up we know injuries are or specifically hamstring injuries are increasing but like even how those two things are related is not um is not crystal clear so it's, it'll be interesting what's kind of um i think we'll you know i think we'll get there and and um but it's kind of one of these big data things right like we just don't right I think like two two last points on this, and I think we'll probably wrap it up. But uh, the you know the how those things are related. I think that's where Tim Gabbett's kind of research tries to fill in the gap. And I don't know yeah, I don't yeah. know anyone who refutes it. Um, I've certainly looked around for critics of his of his work and haven't really been able to find any. Um, he basically says that the relationship is because the game is faster, so your peak load right during the game is mu- is higher than it was before. But because we haven't adapted our training methods to it, you know, the, you then yeah. come down after the game. So those gaps between your peak load and your and your like day to day training load are are bigger, and so that's why injuries are increasing. But in terms of like you know the big data aspect that you know teams have, like teams still don't want to pay, you know, uh, uh, like someone like a data analyst a lot of money to come work for them. Like they still regard that as like a relatively low-paying job within the club, whereas data analysts is an incredibly high-demand industry right now. And so to have someone 
I mean, like, obviously I'm painting broad strokes here, but most clubs don't want to pay someone what the industry standard is for a good data analyst. So they end up just using, like, athletic trainers or interns or something like that to, like, sort spreadsheets. And that's not, you know, that's not how to analyze this information. So you get it. So there's, there's a big mismatch there, too. I think just, like, the level of, you know... I don't know how you want to put it, but maybe even respect, like for for what this job entails and how complicated it is, just isn't quite there yet. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're like, hey, hey, Kit guy, do you know Excel? Yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> seriously how it is. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, just just I think I think I mentioned it in the article I wrote about in, so like injury prevention companies that like a year and a half ago, like they're just like sorting Excel spreadsheets and just like, oh, yeah, that's this is very interesting, like color-coded spreadsheets. It's pretty it's pretty bad. No, I was just going to say that, that I, you know, I, I want to, I'm, I'm really curious about Bunce, uh, Bunce's uh, um, injury stuff going, that, that he put in place over in England, because if he, if he did convince all these clubs to really share data, like, like it sounds like he did then, I mean, that's cool because, because obviously, like, they would be reticent to do that, I think, um, under normal circumstances, so. So it'll be interesting to see uh, or learn more about that. Yeah, agreed. Well, uh, usually before we wrap up, I ask Will if there's anything he's written recently that he wants to share, uh, and I will give you the same the same privilege. Uh, if you've written anything recently you want the people to go check out. <laughs> I wrote a kind of fun little story about um, how clubs welcome players and kind of like get them settled in after they make uh, a transfer. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm obviously an American. I live in Germany, and I, I appreciate how, uh, how um, bewildering it can be to just like come to another country and have to work right away and um and perform perform at your best damn lazy millennial and, um, yeah right <laughs> but uh but it's tough you know it's not everything's if, if things are weird um and difficult off you know out, outside of work it's hard to really uh to really execute and i'm i mean and like so so i have a little sympathy for some of these guys who who transfer to a new country and don't speak the language and they have to uh they have to, you know, their their livelihood depends on them excelling at work, you know. And um, so I talked to a local, the team that's close by where I live, uh, Hoffenheim, and they're really cool um, about uh, talking to me about how they um, facilitate, um, you know, having players settle in. Cool. I haven't. What about you? Yeah, I haven't <laughs> written anything recently, but uh, this Thursday I'm doing our Throwback Thursday article about. Uh, it's about the 1978 Amateur Sports Act, and I mean that's couldn't sound more boring if I actually tried to make it boring, but I basically re- I basically uh, explain how that relates to the Russian doping scandal and how uh, basically the structure of the American Olympic movement guarantees that we will never have a, a doping scandal like the Russian one uh, and why maybe we should think more critically about uh, the American doping kind of enterprise as it relates to Russia and not be so judgmental about how Russia goes about its doping program since we do a lot of similar things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure doping is is big business in the US too, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's uh I don't know. I'm I'm I, I'm getting kind of fed up with the with the discussion around doping uh especially in this country and also in Western Europe in a lot of in a lot of ways uh similar attitudes but that's a <laughs> that is another topic for a much longer amount of time than we have now <laughs> yeah well, we can go on for another two hours right yeah 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 well, tim doesn't have anything to do tim's tim's <laughs> chilling all right uh brian i appreciate you uh filling in for will as he does romantic things uh i had a very romantic time with you here so thank you uh, yeah it was a, was a pleasure all right dude thanks for inviting take it easy 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.